Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred? Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. No time to die. More like no time to waste to get to the middle seats podcast, the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. I'm your secret agent, I guess. I don't. I don't know. I'm running out of things to call myself. Uh, my name's Andrew OJ. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> horrible, horrible spy. <laughs> Revealed your identity in the first five seconds. I wouldn't be a confident one. I don't know. That's all I'm saying. Uh, being a friend with him is a bond that never can be broken, Mr. Nate Longarini. Aw, good to hear from you too, Drew. That was cute as shit. Daniel Craig would throw up. Yeah. Yeah, and his opinions really blow felled, Mr. Jake Hensler. Oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I felt better about we were this is a double record night for us, and I felt better about these puns than I did on the other podcast that we recorded tonight. No, those are those are well done. I can tell you spent the last three months of empty silence on our end coming up <laughs> with good ones. I, I would like to see Andrew as a spy though. Uh, I wouldn't. I just see it as, as twenty two jump street. Is that your badge? Did you really just look at your badge? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Middle Seas Podcast is the best seat in the house for all things movies and entertainment. Our show is typically divided into three segments. Uh, we start with the lobby talk segment, where this week I will pitch a topic, and we will talk about that topic for 10 to 15 minutes like we are in the lobby of a movie theater. Uh, then we will have a couple of news items to discuss today, and then we will get into our feature review, non-spoiler and spoiler, of Daniel Craig's swan song in the James Bond franchise, the 25th Bond movie, No Time to Die. It's out, finally. Uh, it felt like a movie that existed, but not really for a while, uh, as much as it's been delayed. But it is here, finally, and we're finally going to get a chance to talk about it on the show. Um, I, I don't know. I can't talk, top that opening, so let's just go into lobby talk, I guess. Let's all go to the lobby. You in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. It's a pretty simple lobby talk today, guys. I mean, it is a topic that is going to be on everybody's mind once the dust settles on No Time to Die, the whole idea of who is going to take over for Daniel Craig. Now, I don't think it's going to be an immediate transition. I doubt we're going to get a Bond movie again until at the earliest 2025 uh, because they have to go through the transition process. Uh, but when that transition process happens... Who, who are you pinpointing, or what kind of actor are you pinpointing, Nate? Yeah, so there's been there's been lots of talk about Bonds. Um, a couple of older actors have been thrown out there. I won't say any of their names just in case they're one of your picks. But me personally, like this movie and even the Bonds before him have all been about an older Bond, and I'd be okay spending a little bit more time with a younger one. I know we kind of got that in Casino Royale because Daniel Craig played the part for 15 years, but... <laughs> right, in theory, that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And we only really got one good movie of him that way. Skyfall is very much an old school versus new school story. And I'd be okay just trying some new school stuff. So my pick is going to be John Boyega. I feel like I really God liked... damn it. 
Oh, did I steal your guy? Fuck, I need to pivot. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to continue as if you didn't interrupt me. <laughs> Wow. No, no, keep this in. Keep this in. I'll, I'll, keep this. I'll pivot. Okay. I'll figure something right. out. <laughs> Woo! All right. I beat Drew to the punch on something. That doesn't happen too often in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, but he's he was a charismatic as sin actor coming out for Star Wars The Force Awakens. I said in that review at the time um, when we did Last Jedi that all three characters that were introduced for that trilogy – were so charismatic and so much fun, and I would love to see more of them. And John Boyega fits all the boxes. He's young, he's got the charm, um, and he's got the new angle. He is a black actor, an up-and-coming black actor, and I think that could be really important to reinvigorate the franchise. Um, a lot of people of color have been nominated as potential floats in the internet speak about a new Bond, and I think out of all the names I've seen, John Boyega fits the bill for me. I think he could be really, really fun. And if they want, you could even do Daisy Ridley as the girl Bond, and I'd be okay with that too. <laughs> it's literally, it's uh, it's literally like you took my script and just copy and pasted it to your notes because <laughs> you just said literally everything I was going to say. So I'm just, I'm, we're going to do something unprecedented here, and Jake is going to be the finale because I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to come up with. I mean. I can come up with other black actors, but my point is that what do you do? How are you going to do Bond different? Because No Time to Die, and we'll get into this more in about 25, 30 minutes, but it's a it's a final point on a 21st century era of James Bond um, where, you know, they kind of adapted all the franchise's legacy and the big things that they're known for and the villains that they're known for to this century. So how do you how do you reboot it and make it new? And I think you have to go into a you have to try something different. And I think a black bond is a, a as long as you don't make it a token thing. If you actually explore yes. what it means to be a black agent in a world that has you know been dominated by white agents for so long, and you have someone who's charismatic and can play the role of Bond successfully. Um, I think that's I think that's got to be the next route to go, or or you just do it where you you go female, but I don't know if they're ever going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I Boyega was the guy I pinpointed because of his char- his charisma and his natural suaveness um, that has been on display since Star Wars and the Star Wars movies did his character dirty. Like I want to I want to see more of him, and <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen in a coherent way so i wouldn't hold your breath oscar isaac got his got his up-and-coming roles lately i haven't seen as much as john i would love to see more of him um yeah i like that pick a lot i would be cool with that um this was a bit of a tough lobby talk for me because this is such a hot it's been a hot topic for like five years now um have you had you asked me pre-2015 i'd say tom hardy's easy but between mad max and revenant in the same year I, i think he's too big Last year, I would have said Tom Hiddleston, but I think Loki as a show got too big, so I think he's out. And that's the thing. I think Bond needs to be somebody who's at least recognizable, somebody you've seen before, but who's not huge yet. Like, established acting chops, can play the part, but isn't such a household name yet, isn't a well-known face yet. So Mm. it was a bit tough because you always go to A and and even B-listers, but I was thinking from the movies Unbroken in 71, a guy named Jack O'Connell. I feel like he could play the part pretty well. Um, 
Yeah, I like and that that's a lot. the thing. I don't even have that much to say to be honest because I haven't seen him in that many things, and I only saw both those movies once. But I remember thinking he was good in both. He can play action roles. He can be serious, but he can he. There is a bit of a a grit and swagger, and he's young. I think he's 30, 31. Well, I guess that's where when Craig started, but he looks younger. He's got a younger look to him, so I think he could pull off that angle as well. And is he British? I believe so. Okay, I think he's I think he's British. I I don't totally remember. I was trying to. So you guys were more creative. I was trying to stick a little bit old school with my thinking, like what they've done already. But yeah, I think the the younger. I think he could pull off the younger one. He looks young too. He doesn't look that old, so I think he could pull that off. Um, and I know he's he's been good in serious, gritty drama action roles before, so I could see that guy playing the part. Yeah, he's like the exact level of prominence that they're looking for. He's not a complete unknown, but yeah, I think the the one movie I've definitely seen of his is Unbroken, and I liked him in that. He was he was a good lead. Yeah, um, I like that pick. I I actually would be pretty happy if we even got like a no name actor or some like you said somebody who's not very up in the the public sphere yet not a living room name yet uh, of the of the popular choices that everybody puts on their like wish list um i've always really liked richard madden as an option of course for those of you who don't know the name uh that's rob stark from game of thrones that's pretty oh. good it's prince charming and cinderella he's about to be it looks like he's the lead of eternals uh so that might actually even take him out of the running but uh, yeah. he he <laughs> He has the look and the suaveness, uh, and there's a there's a show called Bodyguard that a lot of people like that say he, is it like basically an audition tape for Bond, just like Layer Cake kind of was for Daniel Craig. Um, mm. That's that's the one I've always liked, but I don't know. We're not gonna get an answer on this. I think until I I think late 2022 at the earliest. I so, hope they give it uh, some time. Let them be yeah. spaced out. The producers have already said they're not gonna even start looking until next year. So it's like, yeah, let, cool. let let Craig have his moment, Good. right? I mean, yeah, we we don't need like a Spider-Man three to Amazing Spider-Man situation where they reboot the franchise way too soon. <laughs> Absolutely, give it time to breathe and give it time to die. <laughs> in case of title here, so that'll do it for lobby talk. Let's move into a couple of quick news items before we get to that main review. And this just in: a Newsbreak special report. This is news. I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. You know, when I got that notification from Variety and Deadline, Nate, I knew we couldn't let it go. Some Christopher Nolan news for you here on this lovely October evening when we're recording this. Yes! (laughs) Big Daddy Nolan returns! (laughs) As you can see, his enthusiasm has not been diminished by the disappointment of Tenet, uh, which of course came out last year. It was a beacon of hope for theaters, even though it didn't do really well. Um, It was one of the only movies to actually stubbornly go to theaters. Uh, and Jake and I really liked it, uh, with qualifications and Nate did not like it. Yeah. There's an asterisk next to that. (laughs) Mm. Yes. The tenant was incredibly ambitious, but ultimately failed to put together a coherent story. But what does big daddy Nolan have in store for us now, Drew? First of all, let's talk about the fallout from everything with tenant, uh, because, Tenet doesn't do, I mean, and this might not be the exact ripple effect, but this is how it looks to me, is that Tenet doesn't do really well. They panic. They send all their, uh, War- they being Warner Brothers, they send all their other movies uh, to streaming day of date and in theaters for 2021. 
like major movies like the Suicide Squad and Matrix Resurrections and Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, Nolan doesn't like that, uh, and he leaves Warner Brothers. Uh, so now there's a bidding war for the next Christopher Nolan movie, uh, knowing that he is not going to go with the streaming thing. And it turns out Universal has won that bidding war, and what they've won is a biopic based on the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is a name that a lot of you will recognize from your high school history. If you are a history junkie, you know very intimately that he is known as the father of the atomic bomb. He played a crucial role in the United States winning World War II with some severe ethical consequences, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he developed the atomic bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and basically decimated the Japanese population and ended the war. Um, so, yay, America. Woo. Um, <laughs> sure. sure. This will be the first time since Memento that the director, the director being Nolan, has not made a film for Warner Brothers. Universal has promised him a budget of $100 million for this biopic, so you know it's not going to be a slight thing. It'll probably be scale-wise similar to Dunkirk, I would assume. You know, historical fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh he also gets a guaranteed 100-day theatrical window. So that's very significant because the movie cannot hit any kind of streaming or any kind of VOD platforms until it's been in theaters or had a chance to be in theaters for four months. Is that four months? Not quite four months, three and a half months, roughly. Yeah. Um, and and the, the big news in terms of creative uh, team is that Ludwig Gornson returns to do the score from Tenet. Uh, Hoyt Van Hoytma, his, his uh, old reliable cinematographer from Interstellar and Dunkirk, he'll return as well. And then Killian Murphy, who of course played Scarecrow for him in the Dark Knight trilogy. He also was in Dunkirk, exception. He is going to be playing Oppenheimer. Uh, so that's what we know about it so far. There's a lot to unpack in terms of what's going on with the production and what's going on behind the scenes with the studio. So tackle it any way you want. Jake, let's start with you. Yeah, certainly in interesting and different, you know. Nolan has has been tapping into some like action sci-fi mind bendy stuff for a little while now, but we haven't seen a biopic. So I'm really 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 curious to see what his angle would be because in my opinion, Nolan has not done a bad movie. Even his his lowest movies are still solid. And he's just always got an interesting angle. He's always got an interesting style. He's always trying to do something unique and, you know, toy with the audience a little bit. How he's going to do that with a biopic, I don't know. I'm not the genius that Nolan is, but I'm very, very curious. And I think we all can agree. We're, we are at the point where anything Nolan slaps his name on, it can be like Pinecone in the rough and be like, great, I can't wait to see it. Like, it doesn't matter. Anything he does is going to be exciting. Um, I also think, slightly off topic... But not. It's interesting that we are talking about this and Bond in the same podcast because one, I've heard a lot of Twitter say they would love to see Nolan do a Bond, and two, I've seen a lot of Cillian Murphy talk to be Bond, and then I also thought, why not John David Washington from Tenet? Anyway, um, people have been saying Nolan should direct a Bond movie since MySpace was around. So <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's it's I guess sort of funny coincidence, but not because we talk about Nolan on the pod every third podcast um but yeah and i mean Cillian, killian killian or Cillian? Damn. killian murphy um 
because it's I, I just like Irish yeah. or something or Welsh or something. Uh, Killian Murphy's a great actor. I think he's one of those guys who's good in everything I see him in, and I haven't even seen his big thing, which is Peaky Blinders. But uh, very good actor. Uh, one of the best directors working today. I mean, what do you got to know? You know, Nolan, again, could literally do anything, and I will be there opening night. Yeah. I think one thing you do got to know, Nate, and uh, is what the writing's going to be like this time. Because uh, we, we've had some issues in the past with certain Nolan scripted things. But it feels like this mm-hmm. is something that he can't go too hog wild on, right? I mean, it's a biopic. It, it has its limitations, you would think. You, you say it now. Exactly yeah, right. right. In theory. Exactly right. I am honestly ecstatic that he's going for a smaller scale movie here. It's a biopic, so it's going to follow history to some degree. I'm sure he's going to play around with how the story is told in a similar way, how he did to Dunkirk, playing with how time flows through his movie, because that's his check now. He's the time guy. Um, I just hope he doesn't feel the need to go too out there with it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be great visuals just by the context of history as it is, you know? Um, So I think a smaller budget and a more focused film is going to do wonders for him getting back on track. Um, And again, not that he needs too much course correction here. He's a very good filmmaker. Not perfect, but very, very good, very talented. Um, And excited to see where the story goes. Uh, In terms of Killian Murphy being the lead, like, they've already worked very well together. And just in terms of source material, like, Killian looks kind of like Oppenheimer as is, so a little bit of makeup is going to make him look identical. And to top that all off, Killian Murphy has one of the best thousand-yard stares you have ever seen, which is exactly what Oppenheimer did in all his his post-bomb interviews. Like... It's honestly chilling if you haven't. Just, like, go to YouTube really quick and just listen to how he talks after the bombs go off. It's a man whose, like, soul has left his body and is, like, a husk of what he used to be. He knows that he has changed the world forever and probably not in a good way. And it's haunting. It's literally haunting listening to him. So this movie, I think, is going to do wonders painting that picture in a visual way when everyone's heard the audio before. Um, So excited to see where the project goes. I think it's going to be a darker Nolan, and I think it's going to be a very, very different take on what we would normally see from a biopic, which is exciting to hear. I agree with everything you guys are saying in terms of the text of the movie. So I want to focus a little bit more on like, how this came to be and the significance of his divorce with Warner Brothers and stuff. And it really feels like something from like the 1940s, 1950s, back when directors had like a stranglehold on the business. Like I'm thinking of like the times of Orson Welles where he would sign a, he would sign a nine picture deal with MGM, you know, and would go over there and like Mm -hmm. make their, make his pictures and his big movies. And he would be sought out by the, the, you know, Directors can come and go as they please to different studios and stuff. It was what Nolan had with Warner Brothers was such like a was such a rarity that the fact that they screwed it up and it was such a messy divorce over this, you know, what what we've talked about as an experiment this year that it doesn't seem to be working out financially, although it might be working out in terms of HBO Max subscribers. You know, it's 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 pretty significant and it feels like surreal to think about how much power Nolan has is is he the most powerful director 
You think? I think Scorsese. Like in terms of like political poll, I don't think he would be the the biggest name on the list. But in terms of getting money for his projects, yeah, I think Nolan is is the highest on that list easily. He's I think he's above Scorsese because of that reason that Nate just said. I was gonna say Spielberg too, though. Like he can do whatever he wants. Well, you know? well, yes, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think Spielberg is a better contender than Scorsese because think about how long it took Scorsese to get the money he needed just to make The Irishman. Like, like no studio wanted to give him money to make a gangster film with De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci. Yeah, Nolan's just in that space where his movies have been obvious, like moviegoer slash critical darlings, but big money makers and that combo is actually pretty rare usually usually you get one or the other with a director um and for him to get both so consistently with such ambitious projects is really something and it says a lot to how hollywood operates that he still has this much pull yeah i mean it helps that his movies are really good too. <laughs> yeah like mostly I, all yeah well that's that's like, Dunkirk is a perfect example, sorry, Jake, of a movie that, you know, a lot, like, eight times out of ten might bomb, made $500 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. Insane. Yeah, that's that's basically what I was going to say. Like, his, there's not always a big correlation to, well, t- I mean, take out the, un- you know, the unoriginal properties like Marvel and Star Wars. Like, original properties don't always make a ton of money, and his are the absolute peak of define that argument like original other than dark knight series original property every time and just doing so just doing so well financially like he's just i don't know whatever he's doing he's got to figure it out and and let's and let's be clear the reason he had that financial success in the first place is because how 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 incredible the dark knight is like that that catapulted him yeah right that will make him a lifer for anybody i mean i mean the pivot point the turning point was inception that people were able to you yeah, know, go with him on that crazy ride. Yeah, doing that back to back years just. Yeah, there aren't too many directors I would say are household names to the average person. Like we obviously know a whole bunch because we do a movie podcast, but I can go to somebody who's seen one movie a year for the last ten years, and they will still have an idea of who Christopher Nolan is. That's that's rare. That's really rare. The only three I would say that are all household names are probably Spielberg, Scorsese, Tarantino. Probably. Maybe a couple others that I'm missing, but like Nolan is throwing his name in there easily. All right. I think we've, I, th- we, this is about as much we know about this one. Obviously, we'll be bringing you updates when we, when we learn more. One final thought I want to say about this, because I just thought about how he's getting $100 million for a biopic. You know, when that bomb goes off in that movie it's gonna look good and it is gonna be it's gonna be devastating he's gonna build that tension so when oh. it goes off it's gonna be big and it's gonna be horrible 30 million of the budget and right I, there I'm, a- <laughs> I, I'm afraid to go see it in IMAX I might go I might go deaf like, <laughs> the most exciting biopic ever <laughs> maybe in poor taste but Nolan does have a habit of doing practical effects to think of find a deserted island or desert somewhere and just make his own (laughs) oh Nate yeah I refuse to CGI boom (laughs) alright oh man let's move on to a significantly huge movie about as big as a Nolan movie probably bigger Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's talk about this little property called Spider-Man, and let's talk about the trailer for Spider-Man: No Way Home. That's right, folks. Spider-Man is in fact Peter Parker. But this isn't about me. This is hurting a lot of people. When Mysterio revealed my identity, my entire life got screwed up. I was wondering if maybe you could make it so that he never did. That the entire world is about to forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Wait, everyone? The multiverse is a concept about which we know frighteningly little. The problem is you trying to live two different lives. Hello, Peter. Spider-Man No Way Home, directed by John Watts. He returns after Homecoming and Far From Home, the previous two Spider-Man movies in the MCU. It will be the 27th MCU film. Uh, it is not moving from its date. It will be coming out on December 17th. Thank you, Shang-Chi, for that. Thank you, Free Guy, for that, too. Go Free Guy. All these movies doing well in theaters convinced Marvel and Sony to keep it right where it is. Um, so that'll be coming to us right at the end of this year. It is the third Spider-Man movie starring Tom Holland. It is the sixth time he's playing the character. Sounds right, right? Yeah, six. Wow. Oh, my God. Where does the time go? After Peter Parker's identity as Spider-Man was exposed by Mysterio at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home, Peter's life and reputation are turned upside down. He asked Dr. Stephen Strange, of course, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, to help restore his secret identity with magic, but this has dangerous repercussions that force Parker to learn what it really means to be Spider-Man. Uh, from who? We'll see. Uh, the movie also stars Zendaya, John Favreau, Marissa Tomei, Jacob Batalon, Benedict Wong, of course, returning as Wong. And then this is where it gets a little hairy because we know Alfred Molina is in it because of the trailer as uh, Otto Octavius, Dr. Octopus. What version of the character still remains to be seen. We know Jamie Foxx is back as uh, Electro slash Max Dillon. What version of the character remains to be seen. We know J.K. Simmons is back as J. Jonah Jameson. The MCU version, if there are any other versions, it remains to be seen. And then it remains to be seen if Willem Dafoe, Emma Stone, Kirsten Dunst, Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, are they in this movie? Will we know? Is that a deep fake of Andrew <laughs> Garfield talking on set? Nate, you're the special effects guy is that a deep uh i think the reigning theory at the time is that it's one of those intentional leaks that the studio puts out there insists isn't real but actually is real because the denial just creates more and more headlines so potential spoilers inbound but this is also stuff that we've been talking about for the last year and a we're half. All, we're all <laughs> expecting it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's almost like when you when you get into the concept of a multiverse and you cast certain actors and confirm that certain actors are in it. You, 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 I mean, I ho I don't want all the speculation around this movie to be that, but you just can't help it, you know? Like It's also never been done before, so it's going to be exciting. It's, at the very least, we, we talked about this when we first heard about um, Willem Dafoe and all those, all those rumors. This movie could very well make all of these extraneous characters a glorified cameo scene where they just show up, they say a line, and then they're out. Or they could be the focal point of the movie. We just don't have enough information yet, and hopefully, knock on wood, because Sony does the marketing and not Marvel for this, um, 
the trailers don't spoil much more. We will probably get one more trailer before December, and I hope they keep the spoilers to a minimum. I hope they they don't release another trailer. Who needs one? We're all in. They 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 will. I bet they will the day tickets go on sale. Yeah, they like probably. to do that. That's usually how these things work. My prediction is tickets will go on sale mid-November, probably right after Ghostbusters, the next big Sony movie comes out, um, or right after Eternals, and they'll debut the trailer on Monday Night Football because they like to do that, like during halftime. Hmm. But I don't disagree, Jake. You're right. It's just a matter I, of I don't. I didn't need one in the first place, <laughs> but I definitely don't need another one. I was... Like, yeah. mm-hmm. everybody knows about this movie. Everybody knows when it's coming out. Everybody who wants to see it is going to go see it. We don't need any more. We're all good. Everybody's set. It's a little wishful thinking to think that they weren't going to do any trailer. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would day, love to see that that uh, that type of marketing style. Avengers Endgame almost pulled that off, remember? <laughs> they that, that was a very ballsy marketing campaign. They just re- re-ran old footage. <laughs> we were like, yes. <laughs> hey, what what mm-hmm. did we get like? We got like... 20 to 25 new shots they, like, they showed the the white costumes and then it was like it was basically all old footage and we were all like i can't wait those are some <laughs> of the best trailers of all time i still contend yeah. i watched that so many times oh yeah i went into the i was working at a restaurant at the time of endgame and i went into the bathroom to watch the trailer multiple times throughout the day i don't care <laughs> anyway spider-man no yeah we're talking about the trailer <laughs> now we're mm-hmm. getting nostalgic Oh, yeah, we haven't even talked on what we actually see in the trailer yet. So, Doctor Strange being in this is a fun twist with this. I I like the character a lot, and it looks like he's going to be super weird Doctor Strange. Um, we, we haven't talked about What If on this pod at all, um, the, the Marvel show that was on Disney+. Plus, But, like, there's the Doctor Strange episode in that series where we just get to see that character go off and do crazy things and getting more of that live action is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I feel like at least from the tone, the trailer setting, Dr. Strange probably could have told Peter the rules before he started casting the spell. <laughs> I feel like there could have been a little more planning but, and a little bit more like, you know, be responsible, but I'm assuming there's going to be a little bit more yeah, to yeah, it than yeah. what we see in the trailer, but we'll find there out. There are these crazy fan <laughs> theories of if that's actually Doctor Strange, too. So mm. I, we don't know enough context, but yes, I, I agree. with. Just tell him to shut up. Like, why does he even have to be there? <laughs> Can't he cast a spell to shut him up? <laughs> yep. Get the cape around his mouth. I mean, it doesn't seem hard. <laughs> anyway. Mm-hmm. What do we all think about Doc Ock coming back? That's, that's at least guaranteed that he's back in some capacity. Super exciting. <laughs> I, I love Alfred Molina in that role. So. Oh, yeah. He's great. Mm-hmm. Whatever we get from him, I, I'm pleased. Yeah. As long as we don't as long as long we don't get Topher Grace, I'm, I feel like I'm good. <laughs> and, like, this is – Spider-Man is notably the only character involved in the MCU that has to deal with a secret identity. Almost everyone else either doesn't really care yeah. or just is their superhero persona all the time, right? So I'm very curious to see where they expand on it in here because in the first one, we got the standard superhero trope where, like, I can't tell everybody, but I still have to be my superhero self. And then Far From Home was kind of dealing with the, I got to tell certain people, but now I got to keep those people safe, right? And now the last one is the open-ended question. Now that everyone knows my secret identity, can my life still be the same? And 
We'll see if it, Peter Parker can come to terms with that. But I've, all of the speculation is obviously around the crossover villains and whether we're getting other Spider-Man and blah, blah, blah. But we do have to think about this story. How are, I wonder how they're going to successfully tie all of this in to actual Tom Holland, Peter Parker's story and life, you know? Like, everybody wants to know about the the heroes and villains that are going to pop up, but we do still need to establish what happens after, if, after people forget. There's going to be a lot of story going on. Um, you know, also, it's still taking place post-Endgame. People are still adjusting to the snap. Like, there's going to be a lot going on. Let's even go. Let's even go back to square one. Are people really that convinced by that Mysterio video that they think he's a murderer after he helped save the world? Like, yeah, there's a lot to dissect outside of the crossover. Yeah, and then and his his relationship with Zendaya's Michelle is going to be very crucial, I think, to this. Yeah, because it clearly it clearly they're they're at a budding stage of their relationship, and they need to do enough work to establish that. He's so in love with her that he is willing to mess up the spell and basically have these catastrophic consequences, you know? like Right. Because, like, it, it's kind of the thing, like, yes, he has this secret identity, and yes, it's all being affected, but he... Peter Parker could drop out of school if he wanted to and just go live at the Avengers Tower. Like, in this version of the story, he has backup, you know? So it's like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of his family would have backup as well. Yeah. So it's like, is is what's happening in his life really that catastrophic that he needs to go and ask for Doctor Strange's help? That's something they're going to have to set up before they even get to any of the multiverse stuff. Yeah. And be very convincing. 100%. Mm-hmm. And like the other, the other factor, at least that we can see from the trailer, is that he's being labeled a murderer, which is accurate, but... We're also talking in a universe where Iron Man casually blows up people in the very first movie of the MCU. Like, the no-kill rule has not really been a factor in Marvel movies up to this point. The the big factor is that everybody thinks Mysterio's a hero, remember? Right. They don't know he's a villain. So it looks like Spider-Man murdered, like, a superhero, which is, I, again... It's a matter of you're, you're basically believing the Alex Jones of this universe. Uh, <laughs> so it's like they're going to have to make that credible as well. Yeah. That, and that's my other thing. That's a like a little pet peeve of mine when there's just lack of communication to move the plot forward. If Peter just explained everything, you know, if it was like, character to character, that's one thing. But this is trying to convince the entire world. Yeah. In a world where we know, like, we can't convince people to to take a life saving vaccine, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> convincing a whole swath of people that Spider-Man is a, actually a good guy. Really trust him here when part of the population doesn't. Um, I don't know. They could even get topical with it and how misinformation spreads. Very true. Very true. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Okay. I, there's there's only so much we can talk about here because we only got one trailer. We, lack yeah, of information. <laughs> but I, obviously, obviously, vibes are good. Obviously, we're excited. Uh, and obviously we'll have more to talk about either for a second trailer or when the movie comes out on December 17th. Either way, this will not be the last of the Middle Seats podcast talks about Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That'll do it for our new segment. Let's pivot back to James Bond and let's get into our feature review of No Time to Die. We used to be able to get into a room with the enemy. Now they're just floating in the ether. 
target enough people. And the people become the weapon. James Bond. Licensed to kill. I could be speaking to my own reflection. And life is all about leaving something behind. If we don't do this, there will be nothing left to say. Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and now No Time to Die. That is the Daniel Craig era of the Bond franchise, which will hit 60 years next year since Dr. No came out in 1962, starring Sean Connery. What a legacy. You got Sean Connery, you have George Lazenby, you have Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and of course, everybody our age is most familiar with Daniel Craig, who has been playing the role for the longest time than any other Bond actor, if you don't count like consecutively, like Connery came back in the 80s, but even then it might not have been as long as 15 years that Craig has played since 2006 Casino Royale, which of course is a smash success. That was a big popular one. Skyfall's beloved. The others, I'm not going to say mean things right now, but if I were theoretically to say mean things, those movies are bad. Um, (laughs) Kerry Fukunaga is the director of No Time to Die. He is best known for True Detective Season 1. Jake will... If you have any conversation with Jake within 10 minutes, it'll go to True Detective Season 1 at some point. Nah, Bojack. But if you bring up True Detective Season 1, I will be talking your ear off. Mm. Yeah, Bojack and is five minutes. And it will remind you, it's yeah. one of the only TV series you rewatch. It's on the regular. <laughs> I No, I only rewatched it twice. <laughs> yeah. Director of that, End of Beasts of No Nation, a fantastic, underrated drama. Oh, he did that? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, he did. Uh. Yeah. No Time to Die stars Daniel Craig, Remy Malek, Leah Sadu, Lashana Lynch, Rafe Fiennes, Ben Winshaw, Naomi Harris, Ana de Armas, Jeffrey Wright, Billy Magnuson, and Christoph Waltz. Uh, the Craig movies are unique in the Bond franchise, as you know. Uh, a lot of people that are Bond fans because they all kind of flow into each other. This takes place pretty much right after Spectre uh, with... Bond retiring out of active service, having defeated Blofeld, played by Christoph Waltz. Um, he is retired with Dr. Madeline Swan. They're off on their, I, I don't know, like I, I was going to say honeymoon, but it's more of a vacation. Um, and then things go awry. Spectre finds them. Bond gets brought back into play by Spectre and by this Project Heracles, which is this bioweapon that can target the certain DNA of certain people. Um, and this mysterious new villain named Safin, uh, played by Remy Malek, who has some kind of connection to Dr. Swan, though that is not clear until way later in this two-hour and 45-minute movie that is a glorified encore standing ovation for Daniel Craig. It wraps up a lot of loose ends, um, but it's also just a traditional sleek Bond movie as well. So in terms of where it ranks in the Craig movies, in terms of where it ranks in the franchise from what you've seen, in terms of just an action movie in general, Jake Hensler, what did you think of No Time to Die? I had a really good time with this. I thought it was a lot of fun. I would say it's number three in far as Daniel Craig Bond movies go, but not an insult. Uh, Casino Royale is my favorite, which I know is probably slightly unpopular opinion. Skyfall would be two. This would be three. Um, uh, no, I don't think that's unpopular at all. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people saying that, actually. I'm the yeah, other way around. I feel like around. Skyfall is the default favorite for most people. I'm with you. I like Casino Royale a little bit more than Skyfall, but they're close. Yeah. Oh, no, they're all all three. I, I think they're all really good. I just don't really like Quantum of Solace. But anyway, 
Um, no, I had a really good time with uh, No Time to Die. I think the plot, kind of like Spectre, I think the plot starts to fall apart a little bit as the movie goes. Or it just gets a little bit head-scratchy. And a little bit like, what? This is what we're doing? Okay. Um, but overall, I think it's really, really fun. I think acting across the board is really top-notch. Um, all the action is really, really good. And I think it, it ties up his story really well. I really was not sure how they were going to send him off into the sunset. And I think it's effective. And I think it works. And yeah, I liked a lot of this movie. There's a little bit of... There's a little bit of turn your brain off to enjoy the plot, which I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm aware that there's flaws and there's issues, but I don't know. I did not feel the runtime. I know some people are complaining about that. I did not feel the runtime at all. I could have sat there for even longer and kept watching. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just really, really enjoyed this movie, and I'm definitely looking forward to watching it again. I think, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, Nate? And as Jake kind of highlights, the runtime is a big part of the discussion that's gone with this movie. Um, so I'm interested on your thoughts on that and in the movie in general. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. This is a long one. Make sure you use the bathroom before you sit down <laughs> or you're going to have a rough last hour, um, especially for all of us uh, watch from watch from home, still pandemic lifestyle movie watchers here. Uh, I... I for the most part, enjoyed this movie, but I wasn't wowed by it. Um, I agree with Jake. This is definitively a middle tier out of the five Daniel Craig movies. Um, probably in the same order that he has. The I'm not big on Spectre, and I definitely barely remember Quantum of Solace. Like, 99% of the human population at this point. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, it's definitely a step above both of those. It definitely works on the parts that it needs to in terms of making this Craig's send-off. Uh, Daniel Craig has a lot of fun in this role, gets a lot of gets to do a lot of cool things, and the story structure works for like his one last mission type of vibe the whole way through um, with all the clever twists and turns. Uh, the movie does definitely take detours that wouldn't be there if this was a standalone movie. Um, there's a couple plot lines that definitely could have been cut out to put this into like the 220 range easy and probably would have made for a much cleaner, better movie. But because this is the last hurrah for all of these characters, everyone gets a little bit more screen time and there are some bits that drag on or don't really go anywhere that I wasn't too high on. I think the movie's only real sin, though, is I'm not high on Rami Malek as the villain here. I didn't have a good time with him. His plan, like, all these bad guys have very weird plans, but his didn't land for me in either the really campy level or the really, like, oh, wow, this is a compelling villain level. And it just kind of fell flat. And that's a shame, because... Spectre's villain also fell flat because his plane was insanely convoluted for no apparent reason. Um, so it's a bummer we didn't get the last really good villain monologue that I wanted. Uh, but everything else here is working for the most part that I would recommend this movie, even if I'm not incredibly high on it, like I was with Skyfall and Casino Royale. Yeah, one thing to mention 
and make it very clear. Nate, Nate and Jake both touched on it, but I want to just hammer it home. You have to have seen Spectre to see this. It, the, the, there, there's, it's it's pretty much mandatory. Yeah, it's a direct because, sequel. Right. It is. It is direct in as direct can come. You know what yeah. I mean. So if you've checked out, if you're a Bond fan, you've checked out to some of these. You need to go back because, and that's unfortunate because Spectre is Spectre. <laughs> um, I watched all of the Bond movies before what I expected to be the original release date of No Time to Die in April of 2020, um, and they are one of a kind. They're very unique in the landscape of some of the most popular franchises of all time. Most of them have no connection to each other. They're isolated stories. They play by their own rules. A lot of them are cheesy, but that's kind of their charm. The The Craig movies are like a, a hybrid of what modern blockbusters do and what the what the Bond movies do. They find a they find a very interesting balance um in that there, there are elements of Jason Bourne in there. There are elements of interconnectivity that are important in Marvel movies and stuff like that. And it's it, it, it's a very interesting conclusion to this era. And it's the first time that a Craig, that not a Craig actor, a, a Bond actor has gotten the opportunity to have a proper send-off. Because a lot of the times, they just change the actor and they act like nothing mm-hmm. happened. Because the movie's completely its own animal. Yeah, yeah. right. This is an actual end for Daniel Craig's time in the role. And they, they're able to build it in that way. And in terms of how much emotion they could have wrung out of it, considering the bumpy ride we've been on and how much Bond has grown as a character, they pretty much, they stick it pretty well here. This is not a perfect movie. In terms of just like a blockbuster, it's solid. I would not call it great. I do have issues with it. I, I did feel the length, Jake, especially in the middle part. I've seen the movie twice now. Um, and it. Where do you find the time? <laughs> it, it drags in that middle second hour a little bit for, for the reasons that Nate already kind of highlighted is that it has, it has this, you know, reverence and necessary requirements to the previous films that it has to kind of circle back around and tie up loose ends. Um, I have issues with the villain as well. I have issues with the love story that are directly the fault of Spectre um, because that movie didn't do enough to establish some elements that are very crucial to Bond's character here. But overall, the action here is slick. It's very well directed and it looks great. Um, The supporting cast is really good, even though... They all get very select moments. I thought Lashana Lynch was great as the new 007. I, I liked that. When they introduced her as 007, I smirked. I was like, that's a really cool little detail that they're throwing out there. She has a very fun rivalry with him, but it's never, like, malicious. They're all, they're all clearly still working towards the same objective. Um, yeah. It's, it's like every character gets a little time to pop in and do their thing. Like, Ben Winshaw is, once again, great as Q. Naomi Harris has done a lot as Money Penny, and I'm glad that she gets a little bit of time to shine here. Ana de Armas is in the movie for like 15, 20 minutes and steals the show. Not even, and, but yeah, she uh, was excellent. I thought she was so good. <laughs> she was so much fun. Definitely, definitely circling back to her later. Yes, for <laughs> sure. Um, but the whole thing is Craig's show, as it should be. And this is probably, for me, pound for pound, his best performance of the five films, uh, just because he gets the most to work with. Yeah, they really uh, focus on him most of the movie. 
Right. So, like, for the first two and a half of his movies, he is basically this gritty, stoic, very serious guy. And, and it's, it's been cool to see him over time become more of the James Bond that a lot of audiences are familiar with. He's, he's a, like a ruthless killer, but he's, he's not afraid to crack a pun when he gets a chance. You know what I mean? And <laughs> this one allows him to kind of show off all these dimensions. And I, I really like that, and I appreciated that. And I think the final half hour of the movie is really strong um, for multiple reasons. But there, there's – Sure. Th- this is a very solid goodbye, if not a spectacular one. Yeah, I – I, I felt that too, uh, and I would ditto what Nate was saying. I I was rooting for Remy Malik because I really did like him as Freddie Mercury, but I didn't really care for him that much here either. He doesn't get to do a lot, and then when he does, he's just he's not doing a whole lot with it. And I kind of felt the same way with about Christoph Waltz, which I was surprised by, because he I think is an excellent actor in the things that I've seen him in. I didn't love him as Blofeld, so. I'm, oh yeah, he, I liked him better here than I did Inspector, but it's a very, very smaller sample size. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's my question to you guys: Do you think these movies would have done better if they did like the Lord of the Rings or the Back to the Future thing, where they filmed multiple movies at once, so we could get the story with less time in between movies? Possibly, but it's also different directors trying to do different things. Right. It, it, that's also not in the spirit of what the Bond franchise is. But but then again, this this part of the franchise, this time in the franchise, is unprecedented. I think so. that's one of the the series issues, at least for me, is because there's so much time in between movies, and because all of the movies have very very spidery plots with lots of double crosses and triple crosses and um. And lots of lots of names that aren't featured on the screen when we're talking about them. It's very easy for a casual viewer like myself who hasn't really seen a whole lot of these Bond movies outside of the one time I saw them to remember the details in between. There's so many characters that I don't need to worry about from other movies. And then all of a sudden they get back into after the fact. If these movies came out like a year at a time or every two years, I might've been able to keep track of those details a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Well, also they didn't, they didn't even know if Craig was going to come back for another one too. He, so. he like, he like threatened to kill himself after Spectre. So <laughs> I, I think he was, he, it was a really bad joke, but yes, he, he yeah. said he would slit his wrists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he yeah. threatened to kill himself. <laughs> he saw the movie and was like, Oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, like overall, I think I think everything around Bond. So I think that's what it was. I think everything around Bond here works for the most part, and he is like ninety. He's in ninety five percent of the movie. Like I was surprised at how little we saw of Vaults and Anna de Armas and even Remy Malek. Like I was surprised at how little we saw them. But it's because the focus is on Bond the whole time, and he's so good, and what they're doing with him is so good that I think most of the movie just felt really good. It's pretty impressive that the movie doesn't drown under all of its characters and all of its plot lines. Some things definitely get neglected and some things are weaker than others. But it never feels like a mess, which I think is a very important distinction. Yeah. Um, And I think Fukunaga gets a lot of the credit for that. Um, I think the screenwriters, him, Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, or whatever his first name is, they they get a lot of the credit for that. 
Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge gets a lot of credit for coming in and punching up and making characters like Paloma, which is Ana de Armas' character, and Lashana Lynch's Nomi character more feminist-driven um, and interesting. That's cool. So I think she gets a lot of credit for that as well. I don't know. I think the movie does a lot of good things, uh, and I think it'll be beneficial for us to go into spoilers and talk about the good and the bad, and if anybody has any ugly. So let's get into our ratings here. If you are joining us for the first time, we rate movies based on the seat scale. If we think a movie is perfect, it has no real flaws, we give it a royal throat. If we think a movie is great but has some flaws, we give it a plush recliner. If a movie is good but has weaknesses that are significant, we give it a wooden seat. We think a movie is bad but has some good things about it, damp lawn chair. And we think a movie is awful, we give it a sleazy outhouse. If you see it on the big screen, we will put the bag of popcorn check mark right next to it on our theoretical review sheet. Um, who started this one? I forget. I think I did. Jake did. Okay, so Nate, you start with the ratings. Yeah, this was a fitting conclusion to the Daniel Craig series, playing our Mr. 007, James Bond. I had a good time with it. Not a great time, um, but a very solid effort and a good conclusion to a good actor playing a good character. I'm going to go wooden seat on this. It was a little too, a little too long and a little too meh in the parts that I really like these kind of spy thrillers for to go above that. I really dig a good villain. Skyfall had a great villain. Um, I dig a cool convoluted plot that makes sense. Casino Royale had that. This movie was missing both those key factors that makes the spy movie genre really click for me. Um... But in terms of an action movie and in terms of the character piece that we've all been talking about, it fired on those cylinders. So I'm going to go wooden seat, middle of the road for the series. Um, but overall, worth your time if you like this character and like these movies. If you want to see this in theaters, highly recommended. The action scenes, when they get there, are really worth seeing on a big screen with the big sound system and all the goodies that come with that. If I was you, though, I would avoid getting the large soda because you're going to feel it <laughs> at the two-hour mark. Nate, are you – do you have bladder problems, man? This is like the fourth time you brought it up. You okay, dude? Yeah. I'm just trying to warn the people I know need to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, I was thinking the same oh, thing, man. Jake. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> yeah. I was I was like – I mean, I, I, drink, I drink a good amount of water too, but I wasn't like peeing my pants or anything. Yeah, I so, – so similar to Nate, but higher. I – this is also – my third, I would rank this three, but I had a better time with it. Um, I agree with everything Nate said. Like, I would have liked a better villain for sure. Um, but I really enjoyed kind of like what Andrew's saying, the globetrotting adventures, the setting. I think all the sets looked awesome. I think all the shots looked great. Um, I thought like visually just the whole movie looks so good. Like, again, the shots and the sets and the production design, all of it looked really, really good. The gadgets, the action, just top to bottom. I thought uh, it's like visually looks great. And then um, the action, I know we talk about action a lot, <laughs> uh, but the action I thought consistently was really, really fun. I like his relationship with Angel, what's her name? <laughs> well, you really love it, huh? <laughs> Dr. Swan. Yes. Played by Swan. Lisa Dale. Yeah. Um, I, I like his relationship with Dr. Swan quite a bit. I did not expect them to continue it as in-depth as they were, 
or as in depth as they did. But I liked it. I thought it worked. Um, there were things that didn't get enough screen time for me, um, like both villains that pop up. I think both could have been done more with, but then the movie was also 240, 240 and change. Um, so I guess you can't have it all. But And the villains, like we teased earlier, we'll talk more about this in spoilers, but I thought the villains' plot could have made more sense, could have been a little bit more, I don't know, e- easier it's, to understand. It's basically... T- it's basically two plots, and we'll get into both. Yeah, of it, that, it was that was a little bit much. Um, like we were saying, it's certainly not a perfect movie, but I think most of it works, and it's just it's just a really really fun two forty. Like I'm excited for, I guess HBO Max or whoever picks it up, so I can rewatch it again at some point. Um, yeah, definitely definitely plus, eh, plus recliner for me. Definitely bag of popcorn. You should see this in theaters because it just it's just so fun and it looks so good. Daniel Craig is really good. Uh, most of the acting is really good. Like, it's just something you want to see on the big screen with a good audience. A maybe not so surprising comp, or maybe surprising, depending on who you are and how much you've been anticipating this and expecting things from this, uh, is Logan for this movie. Uh, Logan, of course, starring Hugh Jackman as his swan song to the Wolverine character. But specifically the connection that Craig imbues in his performance, the whole idea that... This is an old man Bond. Uh, He tries to flirt with girls in this one. They don't care anymore. He's 55. He's an old cranky man. Uh, He's he's a step or two. He's not as suave as he used to be. He's making dad jokes a lot of the time. Like, those little things, just the evolution of the character was something I really respected about this movie beyond it just being another Bond adventure. It takes the time to do something different. Now, a lot of the Bond tropes are at play. And a lot of the Bond weaknesses are at play. Um, and a lot of that is going to be fine for some people. And some for some people, it's going to be an issue. Uh, I think if this movie was 30 minutes shorter, uh, I would be way higher on it. Um, but as it, as it stands, it's still a plush recliner for me. It is on the lower end of the plush recliner scale. You absolutely should see this in theaters. You should see it in IMAX like I did um, because... Fukunaga takes advantage of the frame in all of the different action sequences, particularly the opening one, which you've seen a lot of in the trailer. Uh, it, it, it involves his gun gatling car and just it's spectacular. It has different elements to it. And there are a lot of good sequences from there as well that we'll talk about more in the spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert. So I feel like a good place to start, and even though it seems backwards, is the ending. I mean, it's it's the thing a lot of people are talking about, right? I'm on board for it. This is our first Bond to have the curtains close on the character, right? He he actually he actually dies. I believe so. <laughs> I don't remember any other. Yeah, I really I wasn't sure if they were gonna do that. I wasn't Especially when they introduce the daughter aspect, I was like, "Oh wow, are we are we actually gonna give him a happy ending, or is he gonna?" Yeah, like I was almost going into this movie, I was kind of expecting the Dark Knight Rises type ending, where we might see a flash of him before he disappears off in some diner in Italy or whatever. Um, <laughs> but no, he he could. He is he is he is a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is gone. <laughs> that is there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. 
It's and not ambiguous honestly, at all. <laughs> yeah, honestly, props to the movie for coming up with a good, compelling reason for the character to need to die. Like, having to save the world is one thing, but coming up with the situation where he can't be with the woman he and now daughter he, he loves because of this special virus, I thought was a good way to avoid the cliches of that type of ending, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, like staying behind for yeah. no reason. Or right. staying behind for no reason, or like saying, oh, we can't be together because you'll just always be in danger around me, that kind of thing. Um, you avoided all those typical spy movie cliches. And again, as a send-off and with everyone like toasting to his memory at the end of the movie there, I just thought was a nice bittersweet ending to a good character. Yeah. I, I, I thought the beats there were great. Like that final scene where Ray finds reads from the book, I think is some reference. I can't figure out exactly or remember what it was, but they toast to him and then he goes back to work. Like establishing that while bond was the spy that we've been following, he's ultimately just a cog in the machine of these world safety right. organizations. They say that I think in, I think it's Skyfall. It might be one of the other earlier ones, but they they say like double O's have a a you know they double O's usually have a short lifespan. Like this is not uncommon. I think I think you're mm-hmm. right. I think that is Skyfall. yeah. They say like this is not uncommon. Double O's do their job and they die. <laughs> yep. So yeah. So while we all love Bond and Bond was probably one of the best double O's or more successful double O's that they ever had, and he probably did live longer than most of them. He is like Andrew said. He's one of their cogs in the machine. He served his purpose, and then that was it. As great as he was. Yeah, save save the world, what, five Something times? Like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that was obviously great. Uh, I wanna, I do want to talk about the Remy Malik plan, because I feel like that was, that was where the movie kind of started to... It didn't fall apart, but where it started to crumble a little bit. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah, I don't know. So let me see if I can sum up at least my understanding of his plan. Yeah, see if you can. <laughs> Drew mentioned there there's two plans. The first one is to exact revenge on Dr. Swan's father, right? To essentially... Well, Spectre yeah. in general. Um, To just get revenge for his parents and family being killed. He ends up kidna- kidnapping Dr. Swan and the daughter. And, like, finding her is his whole first half, if you will. And then the second half is he wants to clean up the world using the the Hercules violet. No, what is it? Not Her- Heracles. Heracles. He wants to clean up the world using this Heracles vi- virus by targeting his interpretations of bad people, which ends up effectively wiping out, I don't know, 20% of the population. I don't know if they ever say a firm number, but... It, they, they say million. They say million. So he's manufacturing all the the Heracles stuff in his secret special island where you get the cool set, blah, 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 blah. And he gets to toy with both Bond and his family and Bond and the world he needs to save. And that's kind of it. <laughs> so the first part makes sense to me. It's an old-fashioned revenge thing. It's, 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 sim- it's similar to Javier Bardem's beef with M in Skyfall. But it, that's that stuff tracks, you know. That makes sense. Uh, I I don't know why he cares this much about killing millions of people. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, 
it it comes out of nowhere and I, I feel like this happened to Falcon and Winter Soldier too because they had a very similar death machine but COVID probably screwed with how they scripted it I really think so it's another disease taking over the world comes off in poor taste now I think they I think they tweaked with the script a little bit or maybe left out key parts of what their motivation was going to be. Well, the movie was done done by the time That's COVID the interesting hit. thing. Yeah. So That that's what I'm saying, but like you're saying you're saying the context of it changes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that has nothing to do with the movie. Right. I, I see what you're saying. You it has nothing to do with the movie itself, it has to do with the uh, extraneous have circumstances. Have they just definitively said that they did not change a single bit in the year and a half they've been waiting to release this movie? Yeah, it was it was four mo- it was four weeks from release. But I mean, but when they decided to move it, could you can they, still- maybe they edited something, maybe they cut something out. I I I would be stunned, but I I guess they haven't definitively. Right, we just that. don't know. Okay. I'd be curious if anything that comes out in the next little bit, just because the plot feels half-baked to me in a way that a movie sitting on the shelf for three years shouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I was I was surprised that that was, the, that was where the, the plot was going. When they said virus, I was like, really? And how funny is that? Just wild coincidence. <laughs> Another one, yeah. <laughs> you know some producers lost their shit when COVID mm-hmm. came out. Um <laughs> but um I was also surprised at how they treated like Blofeld at his death. It's just kind of quick and then happens and then they move on. And I was like, he's isn't correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not as familiar with Bond as you, Andrew, and probably even you, Nate. Uh just because I've never seen outside Craig Bonds. But isn't Blofeld kind of like the big Bond villain, generally speaking? And that's why it was such a quote unquote big deal for him to show up, Inspector. Um and then when he was a disappointment, I was actually kind of surprised that they bothered to bring him back here at all because he really doesn't add too much to the story. He's really only in like one one scene and then like pops in a little bit here and there. Right. There there have been so many villains through Bond history. Like Spectre was a big part of the Connery ones uh, and then just went away until the Craig ones. So so really, if we're talking about like the the timestamp of how much time Blofeld has spent in the Bond universe. It's really not that much, but he's the icon. He's who Dr. Evil's based off of, you know? So yeah, yeah. But obviously there's a little bit of, um, influence there. And yeah, you're right. It is kind of an afterthought. Him in the movie in general is a bit of an afterthought, but yeah. mm-hmm. they needed to tie up those ends, I guess, I, which yeah. is fine. It, it leads to, that's what I was kind of hinting at in my opening remarks here. If this wasn't the last Daniel Craig Bond movie, or if they didn't care about the continuity, Blofeld would not be in this movie, and you would save yourself 30 minutes easy. Yes, absolutely. But then again, we also wouldn't get, like, the sequence in Cuba, uh, which is maybe my favorite sequence in the whole movie. Uh, You could have had another organization tackle him in Cuba, you know? I'm sure there's organizations that Bond and M have pissed off, so... I'm also glad M wasn't actually behind it. When they started to play that card a little bit, I was like, I don't know. And then we kind of hear it aside, and then he's not really behind it. I was a little little nervous about that. Ray, Ray Fine plays that well. He plays it as like a guy who's being very defensive because he knows he screwed up. Yeah, but it wasn't like, like I'm working with the villain. It was like, my hands were a little tied. This is the best I could do. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think the way that they capture the progression that finally brings bond back to mi6 in some capacity works well it would take something like his dear friend felix Leiter, which very nice for jeffrey wright to come back one more time and play that role 
It would it would take something like yeah. him mm. dying to bring him back into the fray. Another big name that I was surprised was only in like two scenes. <laughs> well, he he plays a he plays a big he's a big big player in Casino Royale. Um so it's yeah. kind of like uh he's been gone since Quantum Solace, so you forget how big he was, but it's like you know, you got Jeffrey right at your disposal, you might as well bring him into the fold, you know. Yeah. Felix Leiter is another iconic Bond character. He's like always been the the primary American ally to Bond and different actors have played him and obviously Jeffrey Wright is the latest. Yeah, the the opening scene with the with the car and all that is really really fun. And then the the scene where you have Anadarmus just totally killing it as like a new age Bond girl. Um Drew and I've already talked about this before. Um, but she has better chemistry with Daniel Craig than the actual love interest does. Yeah, they work <laughs> super well together. I was so surprised when we didn't see her again. Right. And obviously we know that from Knives Out because they were so good together in that. Even though it wasn't like a romantic chemistry, the two yeah. of them were scene partners the entire time. Exactly right. And like she's just electric to begin with. But that whole that whole scene where you got to have like the standard um, but like necessary infiltrate the bar and find the bad guy and oops we got caught in a trap that every spy movie needs to have it was just perfect and it mixed together a good blend of the old and the new like we got this dry martini we got the dry martini shaken not stirred we had the shootout we had the villain unleashing this crazy face melting out of nowhere plan that almost works <laughs> um it was that was like the perfect encapsulation of this new age, old age bond coming together. And I, I had a ball with that scene. I wish more of the movie was like that. <laughs> I I thought the scene in the woods with the fog was really, really cool. I had a lot of fun with that one. Like like visual style, excellent. But then there's like a hint of silence and like tension that builds. And then he just destroys people. <laughs> he picks everybody off, and he's just such a badass in that scene. I thought I really, really had a fun time with that one. It's like a mini version of what they do at the end of Skyfall, where he sets up the trap yeah, yeah. for Javier Bardem's villains. But this time, he just makeshift. It's vo- it's way quicker than that. I, I I I love how he just he like unloads the clip and all the guys, all the drivers, <laughs> and kicking kicking the car at the end of that scene. I'm glad you brought this one up, Jake. I, I forgot about the scene until you just mentioned it, but that was one of the more fun scenes of the movie. It's the one scene where Bond is, like, entirely within his element. You know, like, he's screwed up at almost every single other scene in the movie up until this point, and this is where he fully lets loose and is like, FYI, I am still a double O, and I am going to wreck your shit. <laughs> right. Well, they all they reinforce that with that amazing fake one but close, you know, like the, the one shot where he's going up the stairs in Safin's facility and just mows yeah, everyone Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're like, remember, James Bond is still the, the OG. Like, John Wick scene? Yeah. <laughs> John Wick should bow down to the OG. Yeah. But Bond has never been this merciless, you know. And uh, as far as great deaths go, I loved how they used the, uh, the what is, what is it called? The with the watch and the mechanical eye yeah the electromagnetic watch yeah yeah electromagnetic pulse another bond callback that was one of his first gadgets i'm pretty sure 
I feel like they started to step away from that the last couple movies. He didn't have a whole lot of gadgets in this one, which was a little bit of shame. Even Inspector, he just has the exploding watch. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I mean, they. I remember very. They made a very conscious effort to have more of them in Skyfall, but that also was partially because of the 50th anniversary part of it and the legacy. But he had that cool gun. Do you remember that gun he had, which was only mm-hmm. calibrated to his fingerprints? fingerprints? Yeah, yeah. And that was, then they they had a great payoff with that, where one of the villains gets to drop on him. He tries right. to shoot him, and it doesn't work. Andrew, were you when you said dad joke? Were you talking about when he kills the guy with the with the EMP? He makes a joke at the end. Oh, there are multiple. I mean, yeah, there are multiple, but that's yeah, the most I, prominent one for sure. I, yeah. I, the theater really yeah. reacted to that, but I did too. I think I went, I under my breath went like, oh shit. <laughs> like he blew that guy's head apart from the inside using a EMP. Like, wow, <laughs> that was creative. Right. And like, and like the Casino Royale bond wouldn't do that. So that's, I've, I've liked watching the evolution of Craig's bond. If we're talking like ranking, bond elements that are in everything i know <laughs> i have a differing opinion at least with nate on the billy oh. eilish song uh oh yes yes i wanted to talk about this because i i i i was i was underwhelmed by the visuals of the opening credits but i really like the song and i think that seems to be a lot of people's opinion uh the the opening credits visuals are cool but there's like there's no like comprehensive theme to it there's like it's just stuff happening i found and i was like all right this is this is fine it's setting up what's happening but like usually like the skyfall not to go back to skyfall again but the under when he goes into the water and it's underwater graves and stuff like that and the demons of his past under the water obviously six feet under that that was a brilliant visualization and there's nothing like yeah, that and here like, unfortunately the casino royale opening is Love also it. iconic awesome I, what's what's the name of that song my you it's know my banger, name though. you know my yeah, name i you love know my that name. one like with all the cards and the like the just the the paper theme of that all um yeah. is awesome the last two openers have not been great <laughs> for from my perspective um like the last one was a snore of a song and the visual was bad, and the movie was bad. So that's just a triple whammy right there. <laughs> this one, I do not like the song. It's not. It, it needs was, more. I thought drum it was repetitive for me. Yeah, it it went on too long, and like you said, Drew, there wasn't a good cohesive theme. Like, there's that statue, but we don't really know what the statue means to Bond. I think I was as, as not that I, I didn't dislike it, but I was definitely underwhelmed by it. And I also made an active decision not to listen to it. So the first time I'm hearing it is in theaters. So then I was like, oh, it's just, it's underwhelming. How? Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I wanted to hear it for the first time in theaters and it just mm-hmm. kind of felt repetitive and underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are going to be disappointed when it wins Ugh. the Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> it's already won a Grammy. Skyfall. Um, Skyfall was the best Bond song out of the Daniel Craig series by far. <laughs> I still like Casino Royale's. It's the same thing for me. This this one is number three out of five, just like the movie is number three out of the five. The one cool visual, though, I did kind of like that did tie into the movie was there was, like, a line of guns that were firing at each other to make a DNA strand. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, yes. that actually meant something to the movie. Woohoo, we got that. Yeah, I did like that. <laughs> right, but that comes yeah. at, like, the end of the montage, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was like, oh, that, that's neat. I yeah. like that. <laughs> um. Yeah, that was like the last thing I really wanted to touch on, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said oh, that because I, I wanted to bring it up earlier and I forgot. 
Hans Zimmer's score is really good. Really good. It's it's very classic Bond, but it's got his traditional, like, big blaring sounds in it. And it also integrates the Eilish song really well at, like, six or seven different points in the yeah, main Yeah, I, I did like that touch of just having that, that melody there whenever Bond had to make a choice is really when it came up, usually involving the love interest there. Um, Swan. But... Um, but yeah, Hans Zimmer, you, you can't go wrong. I don't think that man has a bad note in his body. <laughs> uh, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 score is terrible, but... <laughs> Leave it to Andrew to know. <laughs> yeah, didn't even know it was him. <laughs> yeah, same. I didn't know he did that one either. <laughs> yeah. Final thoughts on No Time to Die, Jake Hensler. Yeah, I... I might be I might be the highest man here. Um, it might be because I turned my I think I turned my brain off a little bit for this one. Once I realized where some of the sciencey plot was going, I kind of went, yeah, all right. Um, but yeah, I just aside from Remy Malek and Christoph Waltz, which is shocking because they're the two Oscar winners here. Um, I thought everybody else was really good casting. Uh, I love where the, the story went. I wasn't expecting it to be so love interest based, but I thought it worked. Um, I thought. Basically, every action scene was really good. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. I didn't feel the runtime. I just had a really, really good time with it. I thought it was a great send off. I will be rewatching this one in the future. Um, yeah, de- definitely go see it. Again, I will keep promoting this. Go see it in theaters. Go see it in a big screen. Movies are back for a couple months now. Go see them. We want theaters to stay alive, we want them to survive the pandemic. And this is a great, great way to support them. Because what better way to. What better way to send off James Bond than go and see his last movie in theaters? Yeah, and I mean, that's really your only option right now. No VOD for this one, which is good. They waited this long. They should get the full theater experience. Nate Lungarini. Yeah, No Time to Die was was overall a good movie, a fun movie. Um, Not not my favorite out of the series. We've gone over that ad nauseum at this point. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a good time. So, yes, I'll second Jake's thoughts. Go in theaters, enjoy it for what it is, laugh at the parts that are fun, uh, look in awe at the the set pieces and the sets that just make this look as awesome as it does, and then complain on Reddit later about why the plot makes no sense. (laughs) And I'm excited to see what Daniel Craig does after this. Like, we obviously know that he's going to be involved in the Knives Out series, if and whatever they do with that. Um, but it'll be fun to fun to see him in some more comedic roles after this, I think, because um, this was a nice, serious send-off for him, I think. And I want to finish this with Daniel Craig. If we weren't really around on the internet in 2005, but when they first cast Daniel Craig, people, just like they did when Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker and just when they did when Robert Downey Jr. was cast as Iron Man, People flipped out, and people had, like, very strong opinions. They were like, oh, he's blonde. How is he going to do this? Like, like hair dye doesn't exist. And it, it, there was a lot of there was, there was a lot going on. Um, so for him to have taken this role and not only made it his own in 15 years, cultivated an entire new generation of Bond fans while also ushering it into the 21st century and making these movies cool again because they were a joke at the end of the Pierce Brosnan era. Um, he should really be proud of everything that has come out of this. Uh, and I'm glad that Spectre wasn't the send-off. No Time to Die is a much more fitting goodbye 
to what he's done. He's able to go out on his own terms. He clearly had a lot of stake in the writing here. And while this movie is far from perfect, it is as messy as you would expect a two-hour and 45-minute movie to be that isn't a Lord of the Rings epic or a Godfather epic. All those movies are going to have issues, it feels like. Um, this is still worth your time, without a doubt, if you have any kind of affection for him and what he's done for the character. So that'll do it for a review of No Time to Die. That'll do it for this episode of the Middle Seats Podcast. Before we go, Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the internet? Alrighty, here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on all your podcast platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. For questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at The Middle Seats. And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. A lot more big movies coming up here in the final home stretch of the year. We've got Dune, Last Night in Soho, Eternals, Ghostbusters, Spider-Man, I almost said Far From Home. You can watch that now. No Way Home is what I meant. A lot of big movies coming. We're not necessarily going to cover all of them, but we're going to do our best to cover as many as possible for you as you decide what to give your money here in the last three months of 2021. That'll do it for Nate Lungarini and Jay Kensler. I'm Andrew Auger. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs>